This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Uh, and if you're watching online, obviously we're, we're so pleased that, uh, that you're joining with us to, to worship together with us from wherever it may be that you are, uh, you may be this morning. If it is your first time with us, um, just want to let you know that we are in the 20 third week of a series that we are calling The Story, and we're basically, we are going through the Bible chronologically. We started in February in the book of Genesis, we'll end in November in the book of Revelation, and our goal has been to see what we're calling God's upper story. What has God been doing? What is the Bible all about? And, uh, and we know that, uh, as we've discussed, it's all about God's plan to bring humanity back into relationship with God the way he originally intended it, Right? So we know that from the beginning of time in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, we know that God desired relationship with humanity, but mankind had to choose God, right? Did we do that? No, we didn't. We didn't choose God's plan. We didn't choose his way and his upper story. We chose to do our own thing. And we know that started through our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And we know they were cast out of the garden. And that's what the rest of the story has been about since we started in February. It's been about God's plan that he instituted in the garden. As soon as this happened, God had a plan to bring us back into relationship with him. We talked about how God creates this nation of Israel with the express intention of bringing a savior into the world who would redeem mankind, who would take the, the judgment and, and he would take what we deserved. He would pay the price for our sin, right? And he would make it so that we could be back in right standing with the Father again. And we talked about, you know, how in this 2,000 years ago, we see the culmination of that. Jesus is born into the world. Uh, he's born to the Virgin Mary. And so we, we, as we talk about God's plan, God's plan was right on track. People got off track but God never got off track. Amen? Amen. And so uh, we ended last week in chapter 22. Uh, how many of you enjoyed Christmas in September? A few people said, can you just leave a few of the lights up? And we were like, you know what? We'll leave a few lights up. So, so, so there you go. Ho hopefully you enjoy that. We'll see if it lasts until uh, Christmas time. So uh, anyway, um, so last week, uh, as we were closing out chapter 22 of the story, um, Jesus had been born. Uh, Mary and Joseph, uh, along with Jesus, they, they, had to, they went to Egypt. Herod was, was trying to, the enemy had a plan too. How many you know the enemy has a plan too? Yeah, he's trying to write his own story. And so he had a plan, but God warns them and they flee to Egypt and they make a home there. And so by the end of our reading last week, Mary and Joseph and Jesus had, uh, had moved back from Egypt and they settled in the town of Nazareth. And we know that uh, they would travel to Jerusalem. Uh, it was only, uh, depending on the route they took from Nazareth, it was 60 to 90 miles that they would have to travel each time between Nazareth and Jerusalem. But they would travel there a few times a year for the, for the annual festivals. And, uh, and they would go to the temple. And so, um, so in that, we, we, we know about the birth of Jesus. We know about them coming back from Egypt and settling back in, or settling in Nazareth. The next thing we know, we find Jesus in the temple at age 12, right? This is when we know he says, didn't you think, no, I'd be about my father's business, right? That's the next place we find, uh, we find Jesus. So up until this point, um, that, that's all we've got until Jesus is 30 years old. I mean, a couple of nice-sized gaps in there. It's, it's widely believed that, that Jesus was, he, he was just simply a carpenter in, in, in Nazareth. This would have followed 
the, the tradition, the Jewish tradition. His father would have trained him in the trade of the family, and he would have, most likely, he would have been a carpenter, and he was probably known in the area as Jesus the carpenter, the son of Joseph. And so that's where we find, uh, as we opened up this week and we read chapter 23 of the story, um, actually, it, it really, it begins with, uh, with John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist was there to prepare the way, right? He was preparing the way for the Savior of the world. And he's prophesying about the Messiah. He's telling people to repent and to turn from their sin, and he's baptizing them in the Jordan, right? John the Baptist kind of looked at as this out there, rustic, street preacher kind of guy, right? He's out there, he's out, he's out there in, the, in the wilderness, uh, you know, yelling, eating locusts and honey. People are going, what is this all about? And they're, they're flocking out there to see, to see, what's, uh, to see what's going on. Um, one thing I've, I found I wanted to mention real quick, I found interesting. Any, do any of you guys read the, the supplement to the story called The Heart of the Story? This is a great book. If you haven't gotten it, I'd still encourage you. We still got the, old, the New Testament to go. I'd encourage you to pick that up. But in the heart of the story, uh, they mention in there that, about how John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? And, he, and he's talking in, in the heart of the story. He mentions how this probably would have really gotten the attention of the Jews. Because when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they would have immediately gone back and they would have remembered the sacrificial lamb. They would have remembered the lamb that saved the firstborn sons in Egypt that covered their sin. They, they, th- their minds would have gone back to that. And, and, and what he's saying in here, and that, and that was 1,400 years earlier. And so in this, he's saying the Jews would have probably made this connection in the way that it's worded. And they probably would have understood that John the Baptist was definitively referring to Jesus as the Messiah. So another thing I thought of in this. Did John the Baptist know Jesus was the Messiah before that? I thought about that for a minute because they had to know each other. They, they were cousins, right? Uh, we know that when Elizabeth, John's mother, was pregnant, we know that Mary went and visited her, right? And so we, we don't know if they necessarily grew up together, but I, I imagine that they, they had to know each other. So I was, I, I was wondering early on, I was thinking, I wonder if John had any inkling. I, I wonder, but then I read, and I, I'll show you this real quick. Because uh, I came to a place, I don't think that John the Baptist knew who Jesus really was until they were at the Jordan. Because if you look at John chapter 1, uh, verses 30 and 31, uh, this is John the Baptist speaking. And he says, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. And, and then verse 31, he says, I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed in Israel. I think that John grew up with his cousin, and he's baptizing there on the side of the river. He knows he's preparing the way for the Messiah. Jesus shows up on the scene, walks up on the shore of the Jordan at 30 years old. You talk about getting hit with something, like Zach was just saying, where God just hits you and shows you something, bam. And he says, behold, it's a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then what happens next? And so we're going to spend the rest of this in Matthew chapter 3. So if you want to, if you want to, if you got your Bible and you want to turn there or on your mobile device, also, as usual, you can follow along on the YouVersion Bible app. All the notes are loaded on there and everything that you need to, uh, to follow along. 
Um, so in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 13. This is where we pick up in the story. And it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, saying, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Other versions say it is fitting for us to fulfill God's will. Saying, this is what the Father wants. Let's do it right now. Then he consented. Then he consented. John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. That Some versions say the Spirit descended in bodily form. And in verse 17, it says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom, with whom I am well pleased. And then look at the very next verse. You, you, you guys do realize that, that chapter and verse were put in there by people later on, right? The very next verse is Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Some versions say immediately. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think the subtitle of this chapter is the beginning of Jesus' ministry or something, something like that. Guys, this marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I see this as the moment that he truly stepped into his life calling and what God called him to. He was baptized, Holy Spirit descended upon him. He was led into the wilderness immediately by the Spirit to be tempted. He, baptized, he's, um, he fasts and, uh, is, uh, and is tempted in the wilderness. So this chapter 23 in the story covers quite a bit. Um, we know that it covers Jesus' baptism, the temptation, the calling of the disciples, uh, he, him turning water into wine, his interaction with the Pharisee Nicodemus when he says, you must be born again. Um, we read about his interaction with the Samaritan woman. In this, he begins casting out demons, healing the sick. And we see, um, we make it right up to the point by the end of chapter 23 where John the Baptist is beheaded. He's executed. But we don't have time to cover all that. Uh, I, I actually read this week, there was so much to it. Uh, I, I was like, Lord, what, what, what direction do we need to go here? And guys, for the fact, next few minutes, um, I want us to go back and I want us to focus on the temptation of Jesus for a few minutes. I want us to, like I said, we're going to stay there, and uh, actually it'll be Matthew chapter 4. And because, like I said, for me, this is kind of the, the pivotal moment. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's 30 years old. It tells us that in Luke chapter 4, I think. It says that he was 30 years old. And, uh, and, and this is the beginning of his ministry as he's led into the wilderness where, he's fast, where he fasts. And after he, he fasts, at the end of 40 days, he's tempted by the enemy. And so... Before I get into my points, another interesting thing I thought of this week was, you know, we see very few times where the enemy is directly interacting with humanity. Directly. Um, for instance, the first time we see it is in the garden, right? He comes in the form of a serpent, and he speaks directly to Adam and Eve, right? Uh, we really don't see that again in the Old Testament going through. Uh, we, we see him mentioned, um, he's mentioned in prophecy. We see him mentioned in the book of Job, but he's, he's with the Father and other angels. Uh, we don't, now we see the results of him acting. We know that he's present. 
We see him leading people astray, right? We see him interacting, uh, you know, from, from his view, um, you know, trying to uh, manipulate things, you know, with God's people. We see him bringing temptation. We see him trying to lead them astray. But we don't see interaction between Satan and mankind except in the garden. And then when we go to this very moment uh, where Jesus has come onto the scene. And even then, if you think about it, we don't see any evidence that, that Satan directed, uh, that he interacted directly with Jesus until the moment Jesus stepped into his calling. Isn't that something? It's once he steps out, he's baptized, and the Spirit descends upon him, suddenly the enemy shows up. Y'all see where I'm going here? When you make a decision to be all in for the Lord, when you step into your calling, when you step into what God has called you to, how many of you know that you become a target? The enemy's going to take notice. If he hadn't taken notice of you up to that point, suddenly his ears are going to perk up. He's going to go, what's going on over there with him? Uh-oh. He's going to take notice. He's going to take action. How many of you know the enemy would love nothing more than for Christians to just simply remain Christians in name only? He would love that. Even Christians that just call themselves Christians, just go to church on Sunday, do their duty, and drop a little offering in the bucket. I, I, I think he's semi-okay with that. Not doing anything else really for the Lord. Not seeking him, not pressing in, not pushing forward. It's the moment that we begin to step into our purpose that all of a sudden he takes notice. And that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes. So, you know, in this, it's, uh, we, 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 don't, we don't talk about the devil a whole lot. Let's talk about the devil for a few minutes. that all right? I normally give you three points. Brace yourself, I'm going to give you five. Five points regarding the enemy. Number one, the enemy will come after your weaknesses first. The enemy will come after your weaknesses first. How many of you can say amen to that? Let's go to the story of the temptation for just a minute. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. We just read verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 2. Then after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The enemy comes after your weaknesses first. Now, some of y'all out there going, are you saying that Jesus is weak? Yes, he was weak. Anybody who's ever fasted more than about two, three days, some of us can't do that. We're like, I just can't make it. I'm so weak, right? 40 days and nights, he was tired, and it says he was hungry, right? Some of you can't get moving in the morning if you don't have your coffee, 40 days and nights, Jesus was weak. The enemy's going to come after you when you're weak and you're tired and you're down. He was trying, I believe he was trying to catch Jesus when maybe he was weak in body and weak in mind, right? And we look at that and we think in today's 
society we live in, well, 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 that's just not fair. Well, no, but that's exactly how the enemy works. He takes advantage of every opportunity that he sees. And, and here's the reality, guys. The enemy many times, I mean, he really don't like to put up that much of a fight. We've been given the tools to resist him. We've been given the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're powerful. He doesn't like to put up much of a fight. So he comes after you when you're weak. He studies you. You know that? He studies you. He examines your weaknesses. And then he uses them against you. You know what I thought of when I was thinking of this? I was, I was thinking, <laughs> where my mind goes, I was actually thinking about sharks. How many of you would say that you have a healthy fear of sharks? Sharks. Most people do. I know folks who will not dip a toe in the ocean at the beach because a shark might get me. Right? That's not us. Some of you know that uh, last fall, actually, uh, Pastor Troy over at City Church uh, was, was, uh, was given a cruise, the, the Jesus Freak cruise. Somebody gave him that, and they, they couldn't go, and so they gave it to Sean and I. So some of you know that Sean and I went on the Jesus Freak cruise last year, DC Talk, Newsboys, Toby Mac, Mandisa. It was, it was really neat, but, but Sean and I didn't go on any excursions. Instead, I told Sean, I said, yeah, some of you all may know that we, we scuba dive periodically, and I said, we need to go on a shark dive. I can mark that right off my list. I've always wanted to go dive with sharks. Shauna's like, you want to do what? What? But she did it. She did it. And we go on this, uh, we go on this uh, shark dive. I, I, I got a couple pictures. Put up a picture right quick. There you go, Miss Kim. They were feeding sharks. And let me tell you, I'm up there on that side of that boat. Nobody was in the water yet. I got my wetsuit on my gear, and I got my regulator in my hand. And, and they said, y'all can go ahead and jump in the water. And I look, and I see sharks circling the boat. And I was like, somebody else can go first. <laughs> I'll follow if they don't get eaten. Somebody else can go first, though. And they went in, and they, I watched for a minute, and they're like, oh, yeah, they say all right. I'm regulator, I'm good to go. And, um, and so we went down there at the bottom, and there's a guy feeding these sharks. And he, by the way, he's in chain mail because he will get bitten. It, it creates this feeding frenzy when he feeds them. And uh, I, was, I was videoing with my GoPro, and he, he's, he tells me before I go down, he goes, you can video if you GoPro. But he goes, just remember, I'm going to be feeding the sharks with my arm, so don't video with your arm because they're going to think you're feeding them. They're going to take your arm off. You don't have chain mail. And I was like, okay, I want that arm, and keep it right here. And so... Um, so anyway, I think there was one more shot. Uh, somebody else took these, these shots of us as they were doing that. But I've got video of this feeding frenzy and, you know, and everything else that was going on. But, you know, here's the thing. You can go ahead and take that down. Here's the reality. Most of us know the stats. We know that we are 30 times more likely to die of a lightning strike than we are to die of a shark attack. Just generally not going to happen. You guys, sharks don't, they just don't generally like human. It's, for most of us, if you're like me, It'd kind of be like somebody coming to me and going, here, here's a plate of liver and Brussels sprouts. I'm going to be like, you know what? I'd prefer something else later. I'd rather go hungry. Sharks don't generally care for human beings. Here's the thing about sharks. On average, and some of y'all have watched too much Shark Week, okay? You, you, you've seen too many great whites jumping out of the water after a seal. That is not average, and I'm not diving with great whites. Well, I might would do that. I don't know. Maybe in a cage. Anyway, um, but... Sharks are generally scavengers. You know what they prefer? They prefer their prey to be old and or weak or injured. That's what they generally prefer. They generally don't like to put up a big fight. You know, most people, 
that most, and by the way, most people do survive shark attacks, shark bites. Um, but the people they found statistically who survived these things, it's because they kept their wits about them for a moment. They realized what was happening and they fought back for just a second. And the shark let go and was gone. People who die are the ones who, you know, they're just done. <laughs> I'm shark meat. And, and they die. But anybody who's willing to put up just a little bit of a fight, there was a, a story a couple weeks ago down in Biloxi or somewhere where somebody got bitten on the leg by a shark. And the guy said he looked down and he saw it and he hit it and he hit it right in the eye and it was gone. It's gone just like that. God, that's why I have you the devil. That's why I have you the devil. He doesn't like to put up a whole lot of a fight. He likes to go after weakness. So with that said, I would ask you, where in your life are you weak? Maybe like Jesus. Maybe, well, maybe you're hungry. Please wait. We'll be out in just a little while. Maybe you're tired. How many of you would say that you have had some tired moments this year? Just tired. I'm tired. How many of you know, we find ourselves really tired and exhausted and semi-burnout. We're weak. It's a weakness. Many people find themselves in that position. We're tired of being cooped up. We're tired of not having enough interaction and community. We're tired of being told we can and can't do. We're tired of the restrictions everywhere. We're tired of all the changes and the inconveniences that have been caused in our lives. Maybe you're tired. Guys, when we're tired, we're also vulnerable. Maybe your weakness is that you, your struggle is that you're never able to be content. Thus, you find yourself questioning everything. And this is huge because the enemy will absolutely pounce on this. He will make you utterly dissatisfied in your family and in your work and in your church. And you'll be questioning, well, why this and why that? And I'm just not making a difference. Why don't they recognize me? And why don't I this? And we're questioning. And all of a sudden, we're seeing the grass is greener on the other side. I'm just going there. I'm done, right? Have you been there before? Yeah. Maybe your weakness is your attitude. Maybe you struggle with being constantly negative. You struggle with seeing things from God's perspective. You find yourself and sometimes your thoughts being kind of haughty and arrogant. You kind of think your way is the only way and everybody else is kind of an idiot. <laughs> Y'all looking at me like, hey, me. Yeah. Uh -huh. You watch the news or you hear a story or maybe even just see a certain person or hear their voice and all of a sudden there goes your attitude. Right? The real weakness is you're not getting in God's word and allowing it to transform and renew your mind. It's the real weakness. And the enemy will figure that out. He will figure out what triggers you and he will put it right in your path. And he'll try to get you to trip every time. So whatever your weakness is, rest assured that the enemy has scoped it out and he's ready to use it against you. He did with Jesus. So number one, the enemy will come after your weaknesses. Number two, the enemy will cause you to question your identity. The enemy will get, cause you to question your identity. Let's look, at, look back at chapter 4 again, Matthew chapter 4. Verse 3, Jesus came to him and said, say these next few words out loud together. If you are the Son of God. Did anybody say it? If you are the Son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. Chapter, verse 6, say it again. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. Guys, identity is one of the 
biggest issues in humanity. I mean, Jesus, here he is just stepping into his calling, and the enemy comes in and immediately brings into question the very most basic part of the human puzzle that we're trying to answer in our lives from the time we're a very young age. Who am I? What's my purpose? What has God called me to do? Identity is huge. We ask these questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Do I have any value? And here's the thing. These questions are the root of our insecurities. It's the root of low self-esteem. It's not knowing our identity. They're the reason the church is not currently making more of an impact in the earth today because we don't know who we are. If we knew who we were, the world would be turned upside down. It's coming. We're getting there. We're getting there. Sometimes even when we do know what the Bible says about who we are, we don't believe it. In my opinion, this is one of the most effective attacks of the enemy. Get us to question our identity and who we really are. He told Jesus, he asked him, well, if you really are the son of God... Maybe the enemy's asked you, if you're really a Christian, then why do you have all this baggage and all this stuff that you're carrying around? You think God can or wants to use you in any way? If you're really a child of God, why are you struggling so much right now? Doesn't the Bible say that his kids are overcomers? Would God really let his kids go through this? If you're really a good father, then why in the world is this kid of yours going off the deep end? Question your identity. You aren't a good parent. You're a failure. You're not good enough. I thought you were more than a conqueror. You look pretty defeated right now. Does the enemy not say these things to us? He gets us to question our identity. Guys, the enemy, he will play with you. He will try to convince you that your identity is something other than what God's word says. So we see the enemy will come after your weakness. He will cause you to question your identity. Number three, the enemy will try to get you to prove yourself. He'll try to get you to prove yourself. Back to the temptation of Jesus again. In verse 5, it says, And the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. The devil says, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he uses the Bible, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you won't strike your foot against the stone. The Bible basically looks, uh, I'm sorry, the devil basically looks at Jesus and says, so you're really the son of God. All right, show me. Prove it. Let's see it. Put it into action. Let's go. Show me what you can do. I think another one of the greatest attacks of the enemy is to try to get us to move into this works mentality as believers. In this mode... When we get into this mode of works, our service to God becomes more about duty and obligation than it does loving obedience. We become confident that everything is great in our spiritual walk because of our performance. And in reality, what we've done is we have become driven by works. You've probably been there before. You've probably been in that place where uh, you, you got into this mode and, and through works you found your identity and your fulfillment and your satisfaction. You, you found all that through. How many of you been, how many of you been there before? I'm, I'm glad like three of us have. That's cool. 
Guys, this is huge today. You know, people, yeah, let's just talk about the church for a second. Some of you are sitting out there wearing masks, and I commend you for that. But how many of you know that we have all come to church at different points wearing masks? I'm talking about the real masks. We put on that fake facade. I think people wear more masks to church than they do anywhere else. We want everybody to think we got it all together. We got the perfect marriage. We got the perfect job. We got the perfect kids. We got it all together. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We don't want anybody in the church thinking that we have one ounce of weakness in our lives. So what do we do? We prove ourselves by putting on a great act, a great performance. We're creating the identity that we want people to see rather than being transparent and real. I don't know how many times we've done, say, for instance, marriage counseling with a couple, and one spouse gets mad at the other because they divulged something, brought something up that the other spouse didn't want said. I can't believe you just told them about that. Church don't need to know our business. Well, what are you in counseling for? You're going to hide stuff. I mean, if you're going to hold back half the story, then go home. I mean, my goodness. It's none of the church's business. Guys, we try to prove ourselves by putting on an act, and it is a scheme of the enemy. It's a scheme of the enemy. We try to always say the right things. We try to volunteer for more, and we put our fulfillment and our satisfaction in those works that we're accomplishing. All we're doing is buying into the scheme of the enemy to prove ourselves. So number one, the enemy will come after our weakness first. Number two, the enemy will cause you to question your identity. Number three, the enemy will cause you, will try to get you to prove yourself. Number four, the enemy will attempt to gain your worship. He will try to gain your worship. Going down to verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you'll just bow down and worship me. Guys, this was Satan's last shot with Jesus in this, in this moment. So what does he do? He starts it with a hike, a mountain climb. He tries to take Jesus to the high place, right? And how many of you know the enemy loves to do that? He loves to promise big things. I'm going to take you to the highest place, the peak, the pinnacle. You're going to be the best, the most. You're going to be at the top. It's probably words he likes to use more than anything else. He shows Jesus the earth as far as his eyes can see and says, it's all yours. Just bow down and worship. And you guys know this is all Satan wanted from the beginning. That's all he wanted. He wants the worship and the praise that only God deserves. He wants you and me to tell him how great he is. Like I said earlier, he wants to write his own story. He's got his own plans. He's egotistical. He wants to be the hero of the story. He wants God to be the afterthought. See, Satan, from the beginning, has wanted to take God's place. God's not moving. 
Satan wants the throne. The father's not about to relinquish that. So in that, what does Satan do? He decides to come after your worship. He tries to steal it. Now, I don't think in probably any of our lives, I don't think Satan's ever going to appear to us, and I don't think we're going to be tempted to like bow down to him or whatever else. I don't believe any of you are ever going to go buy a little statue of Satan and light candles and, and bow down to it and worship it. I, it doesn't work like that. I, I think what the enemy tries to do is he tries to steal your worship. So I believe his first step is to simply get your eyes off the Lord and onto something else. So he tries to get you to worship anything other than God. So he tries to get you to worship a relationship, a guy or a girl. He, he, he tries to get you to worship maybe, uh, maybe a career path. He tries to get you to worship maybe, a, 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 I don't know, a, a certain financial bracket or a retirement account. tries to convince you to sacrifice everything. Sacrifice your family and work unlimited hours so that you can just get another house or get that car that you always wanted that you can't really afford or that boat or whatever it may be. Those things that don't bring any satisfaction. When we worship something, when we worship a thing, we're depending on that thing for our identity, our satisfaction, our approval, and our strength. When we worship things, the problem is that things pass away, right? They're not going to last. And so we are going to end up crushed and defeated. And like I said, the enemy wants our worship because he's egotistical. Everything is about him. How many of you know that God wants our worship as well, right? But God is not an egotist. He is not egotistical. God knows that if we worship small worldly things that we will end up broken. We will go from defeat to defeat because those earthly things are defining our identity and we're finding our satisfaction and approval in them and they will pass away. So we begin to worship a person and what happens? That person ends up rejecting us and we're heartbroken. Or we worship a career path only to lose it and end up angry and bitter. And I think that's how many of us live our lives. I think that's how many people live their lives today, going through these ups and downs. Why? Because we are worshiping something created rather than worshiping the creator. We're worshiping the temporal instead of the eternal. So worshiping God is for our own good. Worshiping God is a way to go because he is faithful. He will never fail us. He will never let us down. He loves us eternally. He always has our best interest at heart. He'll always be there to help us up when we fall. He is a good, good father. He's the only one deserving of our worship. So the enemy will come after your weakness. The enemy will cause you to question your identity. The enemy will try to get you to prove yourself. The enemy will attempt to gain your worship. But thank goodness for number five. The enemy will flee when we resist him. So, when the enemy tries to tempt Jesus with weakness, with being tired, with being hungry, how does Jesus respond? It's in verse 4. Jesus answered, 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When the enemy tried to get Jesus to prove himself, his identity, how does he respond? In verse 7, he says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the enemy tries to get Jesus to worship him, how does he respond? He says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then what's it say in the very next verse, verse 11? And the devil left him. <laughs> Guys, what did Jesus do to silence the enemy, to get the enemy to flee? He resisted him. And we can do that too, right? James 4, 7, you guys know this. Submit yourselves therefore then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. I love the Passion Translation. Look at this. It says, so then, surrender to God. Somebody say, surrender to God. Stand up to the devil. Resist him, and he will turn and run away from you. Guys, I've talked to folks before. I think I mentioned this years ago. There was a guy that used to go to our church when we lived on Ross Road. And every time I talked to him, every Sunday I'd say, hey, how you doing, man? And he'd say, oh, that devil, that devil, that devil. He's attacking my finances. He's attacking my marriage. He's attacking my children. He's attacking my, and I'm going, resist the devil. You've been given everything you need to resist him. By the way, let me mention this too. I want to throw this in. If you did read the heart of the story this week, I think there was about four of us. There was a statement in there that I disagree with. I asked Sean about it, and she had noticed it too. He says in there, in the heart of the story, he says that because Jesus was fully God, he was incapable of sinning. I was like, no, he was also fully man. And the problem is, can you be tempted if you're incapable of giving in to that temptation? Jesus was a man, and he had to make the choice. He was capable. I believe he was completely capable. He was like the rest of humanity, except he, he, did not have, he was not born with the same sin nature that we're born with. But guys, but no, neither were Adam and Eve. They didn't have a sin nature. They were tempted, and they gave into it. Jesus was born without a sin nature. He was tempted. He resisted and didn't give in to that temptation. He did not sin. So what did Jesus use each time to resist the enemy? We know there was the word of God. Each time he starts with saying, no, it is written. It is written. It is written. That's why it's vitally important that we get the word of God. And it's, guys, that's why we're doing the story this year where I'm believing and praying that God stirs up a fresh hunger in us for the Word of God like we have never known before. Because this is the key to living a successful life and accomplishing everything that God has called us to. We've got to have God's Word in us. That's why we're going through the story. That's why at Church of the Harvest, we place an emphasis on the Word of God. We've got to get this inside of us. You guys know Romans 12 too. It says, do not be conformed to the world, but be what? 
transformed by the renewing of your mind, which comes from the Word of God, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's God's Word that will change your thinking. We're, we're told to take every thought captive and, and to bring, we do so by bringing our thoughts in line with God's thoughts, with God's Word, with what He says. We speak kingdom reality instead of earthly, worldly reality. What does it say about God's word? Y'all know Hebrews 4.12. Let me read it from, from the New King James first. You guys know this. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But look at the, again, the Passion Translation. Look at the way he words this. For we have the living word of God, which is full of energy, and it pierces more sharply than a two-edged sword. It will even penetrate to the very core of our being where our soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet. It interprets and reveals the true thoughts and the secret motives of our hearts. Look at verse 13. It says, there is not one person who can hide their thoughts from God for nothing we do remains a secret and nothing created is concealed but everything is exposed and defenseless before his eyes to whom we must render account. Thank God for his word. Guys, only the word of God can bring our lower story in line with God's upper story. Only by renewing of our mind, only by renewing our mind by the word, can we resist the enemy and fulfill God's purposes and plans in our lives. If you don't know this yet, you have the same authority that Jesus had in that moment, guys. And you can use God's word exactly the way Jesus did. And guess what? We, we were one step further. We got Jesus' name. We use God's word in Jesus' name. And the enemy has to flee. He has to flee. That's why we're digging into God's word this year. I want us to be prepared. I want us to be equipped for every good work that God has called us to. Jesus is our example. He was tempted, we will be tempted. If he can resist the devil, you can resist the devil. If he used God's word, you better use God's word, right? He demonstrated it all for us. We've got to take the weapons that we have been given, and with them, we can do mighty exploits for God. And look where Je then Jesus goes on. Look at all the incredible things he does. Guys, we're called to the same, do the same works that Jesus did. But we've got to be able to resist the enemy. We've got to be able to call God's reality into our physical reality. Amen? Let's all stand up on our feet. How many of you are thankful for Jesus, fully man, fully God, resisted the same temptations? He was tempted in every way that you and I are, but he didn't give in. He knew who he was. And he knew who his father was. And I ask you today, do you know who you are? And do you know who your father is? Guys, we've all been at points where our identity and our mind didn't line up with what God's word says. It's time to get that in order. It's time to bring that in line.
first and foremost, let's bow our heads for just a moment. If your life is not surrendered to Jesus, that is your very first step. You cannot bring your life into line with God's word. You cannot receive God's blessing. You cannot do what he's called you to do until you repent and you make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's the first step. It's non-negotiable. It's a prerequisite. If that's you, and you would say, you know what? I haven't surrendered my life to Jesus. Like I say, I've always said, maybe you've prayed a prayer before, but guys, it's not about a prayer. It's about a humbled heart. It's about a surrendered heart before God. Guys, you know, we've all sinned and fallen short. We need Jesus desperately. We need his saving grace. If that's you and you're here and you would say, I have got to surrender to Jesus today. I have tried to withstand the attacks of the enemy on my own and (laughs) I hadn't done a very good job at that. You would say, I have been so lost in my sin. I thought I knew what was best. I wouldn't listen to anybody. I recognize I got to make a change. That's you. The Bible says we just, it's just a couple things. We recognize that we're sinners. We repent of that sin. We turn from it. We commit that to God. We make Jesus our Lord. We put our faith in him, that he is who he says he is. And we declare that he is Lord of our life. And then we'll follow him to the end. And then we run forward with him, never looking back. Digging into his word, seeking him with every ounce of our being. So if that's you, whether you're watching online or you're here in person, I just encourage you right now, wherever you're at, you can just pray a prayer. Just, you can just say something like this. You can repeat after me if you want. Just say, Father, I recognize that I'm lost in my sin. I've tried living my own way. I've tried thinking that I know what's best. I've tried everything but surrender. And so today I give up. I give up my way. I give up my thoughts. I give up my dreams. I give up my past. I I just, I lay everything. I lay my whole life at your feet and I surrender. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. There are many, but I repent. And I thank you that your word says that you're faithful and just to forgive me. Thank you for your forgiveness. Jesus, I declare that you are Lord of my life. I will follow you to the end. I'll accomplish your will and your purposes in the church, in in the earth, and I'll do everything that you've called me to do. And then just ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Say, Holy Spirit, fill me. Empower me to be everything you've called me to be. Thank you for equipping me for every good work. I'll follow you to the end in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone 
at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord, I'm a sinner.